Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. The podcast that's more 90s than Tinky Winky, Dipsy, Lala and Poe. I might have done that before, but my one-year-old has just got back into Teletubbies and it's all that's on in my house at the moment, 20 years on. My name's Ash Rose, your host, your guide on this, the original 1990s football podcast. And we're getting all champions today as we are talking about the Champions League. Before we give it that flavour, seeing as we're now 10 days or so out from the 2021 Champions League final. But as I will say, we won't be talking about that, of course, because this is the 1990s podcast. We are going to be deep delving into 1992-93's Champions League campaign, which has a plethora of stories attached to it. Nonetheless, the Rangers-Celtic Battle of Britain. We had the Leeds-Stuttgart fun. Then the final and all these sort of stories and murkiness that's all around that. All that we chat with. Matthew Christ is with us as always. And James Dixon, who is the author of a brand new book from Pitch Publishing called The Fix, which is all about, funny enough, that season of the Champions League. So what he doesn't know about it is not worth knowing. So we get to, we pick his brains on that season while also talking about the book. Uh, we also talk about Birmingham City as well, which is quite a refreshing change of pace for us. We have never covered Birmingham on this show in the 100 and nearly 40 episodes we've done of Alive and Kicking. So, yeah, looking forward to chatting that. Karen Brady, the Sullivan, you know, Paul Tate and that T-shirt all gets covered um, on today's Alive and Kicking show. So thank you very much for joining us as always um, on a 90s football podcast that won't be talking about SummerSlam 92 because I do that on a 90s wrestling podcast. I wonder if anyone else out there has heard of a podcast that's done a 90s football card podcast then merged it into wrestling. It's like almost someone's seen what I'm doing and they're doing the same thing. Hmm, strange that. Anyway, enjoy today's show. I'm going to keep this one really short and sweet because let's get on with the episode. We've got another couple already planned. So we'll be back as well in a couple of weeks with um, talking about modern football and why it's rubbish compared to the 1990s. Right in our remit, that one. Plus, we've got some summer episodes planned for you. Some England themed, some Scotland and Wales thrown in there as well. We should be looking at Euro 96, shouldn't we? It's the 25th anniversary of Euro 96 this summer and although I think when we covered Euro 96 we did two episodes on it maybe we'll just go back and relive all that over again what do you reckon I think so plus I will soon be able to tell you all about the brand new book that I'm working on as well that has a huge alive and kicking flavour to it um I'm talking to Hans Sagers later this week I don't know if that's a clue maybe maybe not I will tell all soon but for in the meantime please enjoy this latest episode of Alive and Kicking as we talk the 1992-93 Champions League season. It's Alive and Kicking once again, the original 1990s football podcast, back for another slice of action, as I said in that long-winded intro you probably just listened to. Um, today we're talking Champions League as we head into what will be the final in a week and a half, I think, when this drops. So the 29th of May, which is obviously between Chelsea and Manchester City this season. But we don't talk about modern football, or not very much, on this show. It's all about the 90s and, well, a little bit of the 80s, as, as this Matthew will testify in just a second. Um, let's introduce him, though. He is a writer. He's an author. He is the host 
of a podcast, not this one, that's brought the top 20. It's broken the top 20 in the football sports charts. We'll, we'll get him to clarify in a second. Uh, Matthew Chris, host of Life. I'm going to get it wrong again. Life of Brian? No. You should know by now. <laughs> Life with Brian. Life with Brian. I just rolls off the tongue. Life with Brian. How's things going in the world of Brian McClare, Mr. Chris? Well, you know I don't like to mention my other podcast no. on this show yeah. but as soon as you brought it up yeah it's it's been really good we've we actually it's top 21 actually top but 21. we've eclipsed the official mufc podcast which uh you know it's a bit it's the equivalent of uh mk dons uh, afc wimbledon going above yeah. mk dons in the uh in the league table i think and we're two places above robbie fowler as well so uh that's nice we're, we're um yeah we're making a few waves but um yeah, enough about me in that podcast. That's, oh no, it's good. It's just good to see inspiration we've given you. You know, Brian's still not been on this show, which I've still got. Well, he's con- he's contractually obliged oh, not to. See, right. that's, um, I yeah. see. Okay, we can't have him on loan for a spell, but we'll try. We'll keep we'll keep chipping away as well. Um, join Joel can't be with us today. He's got computer issues, but joining us to talk Champions League and one of the reasons why we are so talking about it as well. Author of a brand new book, which we'll speak to him about in just a sec. Mr. James Dixon, how you doing, James? Really well, thank you. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, this is your bit to plug. Plug the book. Yeah. It's, called, it's called The Fix out um, now. It's on 25th, isn't it? From Pitch Publishing. Tell us all about the book before we dig into Champions League and some other 90s factors. So, yeah, it's called uh, The Fix, How the First Champions League Was Won and Why We All Lost. Out on May 24th through Pitch Publishing, which is Eric Cantona's birthday. And that's uh, a little bit appropriate as he, he features in the book uh, somewhat as he was part of that. Leeds team that won the first division in 1992. They obviously then get to play in the Champions League, uh, well, 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 the first season of the Champions League uh, in 92 93. Um, and it was, you know, his performance for Leeds against Rangers is, the, is virtually the last time that the people of Ellen Road got to see him in a white shirt. Now, there, yeah, there we go. We'll talk, definitely talk about that in a bit. Um, James, because we'll talk about Birmingham as well in a minute, because you're a Birmingham City fan, which may, makes me want to wonder what made you, what inspired you to write this book on the Champions League? Where did that inspiration come from, from this, you know, the first season? There's a great story, which we'll delve into bits and bobs later on, but it, what what inspired you to write the book? Well, I didn't think people would buy a book about the 1995-96 Anglo-Italian Cup for, <laughs> well, for a start. James, I mean, there's a... <laughs> It, I, people, I mean, I'll happily write. If people want to prove me wrong, I'll happily write it. But, uh, you know, uh, I think the Battle of Ancona only appeals to a certain few Birmingham fans. Uh, it was um, the first season of the Champions League. It was just it's something that really captured me as a young fan. Um, I think football, football had been taken off terrestrial TV uh, with, with the Sky deal, the Premier League coming in. And um, it was a way for me to sort of get my football fix sort of Wednesday nights watching ITV. And at first, at first, straight away out of the traps, you had a huge game between Leeds and Stuttgart, the English champions against the German champions. It was the first time any English German clubs had met since the 1990 semi-final. It felt really big, and and, and it was it was a great game because it had a, it had it took three games to resolve actually because of some bizarre circumstances. Yeah. And then Leeds go from there to face. Rangers, and that's like the Battle of Britain, the tabloids like frothing at the mouth of about England going up against Scotland. And there was just something about those games that sort of captured me. And then I went on, and, and you know, as you did in those days, you just followed the English teams that were in in the European competitions. There wasn't you, you sort of got you, know, you sort of got behind you know whoever was in whoever was in Europe. 
Uh, and then that from, you know, transposed from me from England onto Scotland and following Rangers through that tournament and, and very nearly making a, a Champions League final. Interesting. We'll, we'll delve into it in a minute before we do your 90 CV as well. Um, but Matthew, first of all, he mentioned the Anglo-Italian Cup there. Did I remember? Didn't you do an article on that once? I, yeah, I have. I've done. I mean, you say no one's interested in it, but I actually did a piece. I, can't, I think it was for uh, the Football Pink. And um, on the back of that, I actually got quite a lot of interest. I got on, invited on a couple of podcasts. I mean, I think there's a big, there's a big interest in that competition. So don't, don't, um, you know, don't throw away your notes just yet, James. I definitely <laughs> think there's a, I'm not, and I'm not, I'm not going to beat you to it because you're more than welcome to, to go for it. But I really think there's a lot of interest in, in that um, competition for the same sort of reasons as you, as you just said, you know, that period of, you know that that interest in in European football again, that which we, we'd been without for so long, that suddenly was re revitalised again in the mid nineties. Very much like our fascination with the Champions League, which we're talking about today. It sort of it sort of went hand in hand with that that rejuvenation, that English clubs being back in Europe again. After I know it was only a five year ban from eighty five to ninety, but it seemed to be a lot longer than that for those of us that remember it. And um, so yeah, I do think it was a, a sort of golden period for for our fascination with European football, which we're probably a little bit um, blasé about now, you know, the Champions League now, which I'm sure we'll discuss later, is it's almost just by the by, isn't it? And um, But back mid-90s, early-90s, as we're talking about here, it was, uh, it was all very new and very, very fresh, which I think is why we're so nostalgic about it, really. There you go, James. We've got a next book for you. The History of the Anglo-Italian Cup. I think that's, uh, that's one we need to talk to, to the guys at Pitch about, I think. Um, but that's, um, let's talk about Birmingham, first of all. You're a Birmingham fan, which is quite interesting because we, I don't think, Matthew, I don't think we talked, if anything, very, very rarely about Birmingham on this show. So that's always quite refreshing to a new club to talk about. So let's delve into your 90s CV. Um, before we do the, the Fable 2 questions, just sort of take us through Birmingham's 90s. Because I was doing some research earlier and there's a lot, isn't there? There's more than you realise when you think of where they were at the start of the decade, what the troubles they went through before the takeover with the, with the Kevin Sutton and Karen Brady coming in. You had Barry Fry, Trevor Francis, Steve Bruce, big, big names. Sum up the, the 90s for Birmingham for us. I, the 90s for Birmingham were people always looking at us and saying, like, there's a sleeping giant that couldn't quite raise itself from a slumber. We were, they were almost a lost decade, really, if you... If you if you look back at it, certainly from say two thousand and one to two thousand and eleven was sort of a golden period for the club, with Premier League and a couple of League Cup finals and whatnot. But the nineties were, it was it was tough sledding to be honest. So it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't that. So yeah, the start of the decade we're in Division Three, which is bad for us. Um, although we get promoted and win the Leyland Daff Cup, which was great, obviously. Well, one you know one of one of the, uh, the the top five or six trophies that you can win, so that's fine. Um, but then we sort of don't really kick on when we go back up to what was Division Two at the time. Um, we have Lou Macari, we have Terry Cooper in charge, and like you say, things really sort of change gear for Birmingham when uh, the Golds and Sullivan come in. They appoint Karen Brady as uh, managing director she's 23 at the time she's yeah, the, you know, earlier that she was 23 i couldn't believe how young at the point that, that she'd been appointed in such a senior position sorry to interrupt you there but i just couldn't I, on that well, note I, I should, the thing, I she, 
she she what she convinced uh, the Golds and Sullivan to buy Birmingham. She saw that we were up for sale. We were in we were in receivership. I think you know that's the nineties equivalent of administration. And uh, she was like, "Let's buy Birmingham City." And um, that she convinced them to give. I think it was eight hundred thousand pounds they bought it for. Um, it was a real sort of distressed asset with the stadium sort of crumbling and you know not not too much in sort of the playing squad. And um, yeah. And she put up a lot, she had a lot of stick, a lot of sort of, you know, not even sort of, it was overt sexism. It wasn't in the background. It was very, you know, what are you doing? You know, you're a woman, you can't run a football club. You know, they thought it was, you know, PR rather than, you know, the substance, which obviously she's proven that she's, you know, with her business career that she's gone on to, to have. But, and, and she, they kind of, tra- they transformed the club. But I think as fans, I think if we look back, we were probably we were always demanding a bit too, bit more. It was always if they could put a bit more money in, we'll get promoted. And maybe we didn't really appreciate what we had at the time. They weren't local. They'd come up from London and that was a, a bit of a criticism as well. We were looking for a, for a local owner, but you know, you see where we are now and with the, the various ownerships that we've had that are based in the far East, they've, uh, I think we'd, we'd take the Golds and Sullivan back in a heartbeat. Do you remember those days, Matthew? Karen Brady is a 20, I'm looking at pictures of her from those days. Yeah. Birmingham, where it had that kind of moody Rangers admiral kit as well. What do you remember for, about Karen Brady and Birmingham at the time? Yeah, well, I do remember Karen Brady because I remember being on Fantasy Football League as one of the guests on, I think, the first series. And yeah, she was, yeah, 20, yeah, 22 then, I think. Um, but in terms of Birmingham, I mean, my 90s memories of Birmingham, I'm not sure if you remember this, but very much of the regional Ensley football bracket. Yeah. Do, you remember, do you remember in the days of... Uh, when ITV had the regional matches and um, they'd obviously lost the uh, top flight football to Sky. So they went down the route of the um, regional football. So you'd have, and, and quite often they would, they would concentrate on teams like Birmingham and Wolves because they had the biggest following. And um, so a lot of Sundays, I remember watching teams, well, watching Birmingham, particularly under the likes of Barry Fry, um, playing in those sort of Sunday regional games against various South End and uh, Wolves and, you know, often hosted by uh, the Instant John, because St. Greasy went to, they did the, yeah. the regional coverage as well. So I do remember a lot of a lot of Birmingham, even though they weren't really in the spotlight in terms of top flight football, they seemed to be on our television screens a lot, purely because I think ITV were, no disrespect, but they were looking for any kind of football they could get and they had the the regional rights and um, and they they went for it, which looking back, back now, I mean, the championship is seen as a big deal, isn't it? You know, it's often on Sky on Fridays, Saturdays, Sundays. It's a big deal, whereas then it was seen as almost uh, second fiddle in terms of broadcasting. So it's funny how this championship has, has, has almost gone full circle. But yeah, many a Sunday afternoon watching Birmingham City against various championship teams in, um, you know, for Central and Meridian and those kind of uh, regional areas that, that no longer exist, I don't think. That Football League trophy, as it's now called... Uh... James win. Uh, it's often remembered from the 90s for Paul Tate, obviously, who scored the winner in that game and then proceeded to take his T-shirt off at the end and had the slogan, was it shit on the villa, if I remember rightly, and got in a bit of... Well, that- yeah, shit on the villa and he claims that uh, it was a T-shirt that just appeared in the kit box um, <laughs> and it was nothing, nothing to do with him and he didn't go out and have, but it was... Uh, it caused a, a mighty ruckus, and that was that was our um, that was our second 
trip down to sort of Division Three in, in the decade. And we 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 did the double that year in in '95. We won. Uh, I think it had been renamed Division Two, but we won the third tier and we won the auto windscreens. And yeah, uh, Paul Tate scoring the golden goal at Wembley a whole year before Oliver Bierhoff. The originator, the originator of the golden goal. But yeah, I think that T-shirt is one everyone uh, remembers of, of, of that era. And I remember getting hot water of it as well. Um, that's asking you those questions. What, if you could pick then, who is your favourite 90s player from Birmingham? I would say Martin O'Connor, who's one that if you're not a Birmingham fan, you might not have necessarily come across very much. I would describe him as sort of a championship Paul Ince. He was very sort of blood and guts, uh, great skipper. He was a defensive midfielder who was a bit limited, but you wanted him on your side. And he he came in uh, from Warsaw, I think, in uh, mid nineties, and you know just just put the club on his back. And he you know he was one of those players that you were you were always confident would give one hundred and ten percent for the shirt. Was, managed Walsall recently, if I remember rightly, as well. So he did, he did, didn't he? Yeah, I think, I think he went back to them after us as well as a player, and he's ended up through coaching and doing a bit, doing a bit of management there. I remember, uh, but he was, yeah. I remember when they got when Birmingham eventually got to the Premier League at the you know the start of the next decade. He was still knocking around there. It wasn't like a vet of the team. Um, so uh, I, th- I think Bruce got rid of him actually before oh, okay. we be- before we became Premier League. I think. Um, the rumour is that him and Bruce didn't see eye to eye. Um, you know, that's always the rumour when someone leaves, I guess. Um, but uh, Connor's last big contribution for us was being hauled down in the penalty area of the of extra time of the Worthington Cup final. And David Ellery, who'd already given one penalty against Liverpool, refused just point blank to give another one against them in the final. And uh, we ended up losing on penalties. Well, maybe that's what I'm thinking of that game, seeing him in, in his veteran state the time um outside of st andrews then um who would be your favorite player of the 1990s might be a bit of a weird one but it's beppi signori of uh, lazio um i just i started obviously watching a lot of football italia you know gaza and all, all the excitement around there and he was just amazing you know obviously it helped that he was fit <laughs> which most of the time gascoigne wasn't for lazio but that that left foot and how he could just pop up uh, it, yeah, and he was. I remember him as a really good header, even though he was tiny. He had a really good spring, and he just a bit of anticipation, sort of, in the box. And um, yeah, I just thought he was a magical player. Yeah, we haven't spoken enough about Serie A on here, have we, Matthew? Because we get every now and then people say to us about our um, Italian flag oh, yeah. mention and stuff. Do you have memories of that era and, and Signoria that uh, James are talking about? Of course, yeah. I mean, I think we all did. I mean, I think everyone, everyone listening to this will look back fondly at that. That kind of area for very various reasons. Again, going back to kind of what I said earlier on, we, foreign football was just not a thing, was it? Until that came along, you just didn't see these teams. Yeah. I mean, maybe if, you, if if they played in a European game against an English side, you'd you'd see them, but you had no knowledge of these players and what they looked like, the kits they wore, anything until unless they played your team in a in a European tie, and suddenly you had all this massive. Of, of content, I suppose you'd call it these days, in front of you, you know, and everyone picked their their favourite team and they all had their favourite player and the yeah, the brilliant James Richardson with his uh, his shows. And I mean, from a broadcasting point of view, I mean, it was a brilliant period, wasn't it? For, for um, and, a, and a great scoop really for, for Channel 4 to pick that up and, and run with it. And, and I mean, and there's still people now that, I mean, we went to that great bar in um, 
yeah. London, didn't we, a couple of years ago, Galazzo. And I mean, that's all stemmed from, from that period in people's lives where they started watching a, a, a league which they probably knew nothing about. And then suddenly it becomes part of the of football culture, which to those of us of a certain age, it still is. Um, whereas now, I mean, kids probably watch Serie A the same way as they watch Bundesliga and the French League. It's probably just one of many things they consume. But um, but for us then, I mean, it was such a such a big deal. And again, it was at the time when if you didn't have Sky in those days, which a lot of people didn't, that was your only real football fix, wasn't it? And, yeah. um, it, and we, were all, we were all glad of it, I think. We, we haven't done a Golazzo special, mainly because I think when we're about to do it, they I think BT Sport did a, a bigger hurrah about it and we didn't want to be usurped in a way by obviously a bigger company. So we will do one at some point. Um, James, you're welcome to come on that because you clearly have a have a knowledge of the Italian league that um, that will be added to that. So maybe we'll put that in the pipeline, maybe over the summer once uh, all the hurrah of the Euros are over, we'll do a Serie A Galazzo special maybe. But that's talk, we'll keep it European theme. Let's talk about the 1992-93, the first season of the Champions League. So at this point, it's been rebranded. Um, James, tell us about the rebrand. I mean, was, is that detailed in the book, how we went from the European Cup to this whole sort of singing, dancing, new league type format, which we'll get into. Where did the rebrand and what were the reasons behind it? So, yeah, the, re- the rebrand initially is very, very specific. The Champions League only name only applied to the 18 group stage uh, that, were, that happened after the second round. Yeah. And even it didn't even apply to the final, even though they're retrospectively called Champions League finals. They still had an existing TV contract to run out. And so the first, so in 93 and 94, even though you've had the Champions League uh, group stages to determine who's in the final, it's technically still called the European Champions Club Cup final. So, you know, boring. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Champions League does roll off the tongue a little bit nicer. Essentially, the Champions League, what this format you have that exists from the 92 season uh, through to 1994, and it's a compromise between the big clubs and UEFA. The big clubs in Europe start pushing sort of the mid 80s, late to mid 80s uh, for more for more money, essentially, and more certainty around around European Cup and European participation. They're a bit frustrated about uh, things like, you know, potentially drawing someone else who's good and going out like uh, Napoli and Real Madrid played each other in the first round of the 86, 87 European Cup and one uh, Napoli were eliminated. And a team from Cyprus is in the second round because they've drawn a team from Northern Ireland and won. And they're like, hang on a minute, this shouldn't be happening. And then they're frustrated because they draw lesser teams like a team from Sweden and they lose anyway. So they're starting to go, this is thinking this isn't working in their interests. And they start to push for a European Super League. Berlusconi is one of the big drivers behind it. And it's sort of a threat that, you know, if you don't give us what you want, we'll go and form a Super League, which may seem very familiar to people. Um, (laughs) They've done it a lot. And um, so it it comes as a compromise because UEFA has got to... um, you know, a dear, you know, there's got all these different confederations, all the national associations that are that are its stakeholders, and there's a compromise that's put forward by Glasgow Rangers, which is basic, which eventually becomes the Champions League format from 1995 onwards, which has a group stage first, and then we go into knockouts. But this, we get this weird hybrid for, uh, format for three years, where you have two rounds of knockout, 
uh, a, a 14, two 14 groups for the quarters and semifinals. And then you go back to knockout for the final. And uh, yeah, like a big, a big compromise and it's messy, but actually it produced some really great football, even though on paper it shouldn't work. What do, what do you think of this, tour, this way, Matthew? Because I, I remember it, but it wasn't until I looked back ahead of this show that I was like, oh yeah, the groups, it's split up. But you, you didn't realise that you still had this, because I think we talk about a lot on here, how we like the knockout aspect of European football. We'll see what the Conference League brings next season, whatever that, I still don't really understand what that means, but we'll see. What, what, what do you make of this format of the Champions League? Because Man United, of course, could have been in it if Leeds hadn't have pipped them the season before. So what, what did you make of it? Yeah, well, again, like you, I, I sort of revisited it the last couple of days because I, I remember it, but um, it wasn't until I looked back through the results that you did, you realised they pretty much got it arse backwards, haven't they? I mean, it's just they've gone from what we think now is, like you say, everyone says, oh, the knockout stage is where the excitement begins. You've got the two knockout stages and then a group system, which, you know, different, which, you know, means we have no semi-final, no quarter-final. It was the top two group winners, which is never a good thing because you don't, you know, people always say, oh, yeah, Rangers made it to the semi-final. Well, they didn't really, did they? They just did. They just finished second in the group. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't like it and I still don't like the way the Champions League is. And I think next year, whenever it's 2024, you know, they're going to mess with it even more. I was just thinking, though, I don't seem to remember much of a, hoo-ha about this as yeah. in the same way that we saw the other week you know I know it's so slightly different than that Super League proposal but I don't seem to recall people getting fed up with it and annoyed and saying it's it's messing with the the traditions because I mean the FA sorry European Cup is a, it's probably you know, it's got a huge tradition probably more so than any other competition rather than the FA Cup and to suddenly mess around with it like this you'd think there would be a lot more um vocal protesting about it and um, I don't know whether it's just that we don't remember it or it didn't happen or or what it sort of almost came in through the back door it seems to me James, you... if, it, it, if it did happen it's not very well recorded and documented um, there is so I've obviously gone through lots of old issues of like World Soccer magazine and all these you know through the process of writing the book and you don't get this fan outrage which, which, which we got this time with the Super League. I mean, one theory I had for that is that they were kind of giving people more of what they wanted, because the idea, while the, the old European Cup has lots of defenders and lots of merit, one thing which I think is unarguable is that, is that the, the biggest teams didn't play each other enough. You know, the, in this era, you had like the great Milan team and the great Red Star team that met once over a period of four years when they were both fantastic teams. Um, the, so the, the premise was that we're going to give you more of the best versus the best. and it, it, I, I, But in a way that it wasn't a closed shop and any, anyone could, you know, people, as has been, as is shown in this season by Rangers and Gothenburg, and anyone has the chance to get into there to be part of the best and test themselves. So, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, from my research, I can't see a big uproar about it. I mean, you're right, though. It is slightly, it is probably a fairer way of doing it because obviously you've got, it's only the champions. I mean, you said about Leeds, get, Leeds getting in there because they picked United in that famous season, the one before, which I still have sleepless nights about. But, um, you know, these days, United would have gone in, you know, they'd have, obviously they'd have lost the league, but they'd have still been in the European Cup the following season, whereas then it, they weren't. And that's how I think it should be. I mean, I know it's an archaic view, but I think there's something to be said for, for the best teams, the champions being in a competition. And, and in these days, you still had that. Um, so I suppose it was fair. You had a preliminary round, didn't you? So that, that sort of got rid of a few of the teams that had come from the broken up Soviet Union and a few other 
country. So they they did like to get rid of a few of the uh, also rounds. But it, yeah, apart from it being a slightly weird format, it was actually quite fair. And you could probably say it's like fairer than the system is today. Well, it produced some great stories this season. Um, obviously, that's why you've written the book on it, James, as, as well. I mean, I think the one from our point of view, from an English and obviously British point of view, was the Leeds and Rangers stints in the competition. Um, the Leeds one, especially, I mean, it's an, it's an interesting tale, isn't it? Because they should have gone out, really, in the, um, in the, in the early rounds, the first round, in fact, and they had the two-legged tie against Stuttgart. Um, it's, the, it's the famous story, of course, as you mentioned that you alluded to earlier in the podcast, they had three games against Stuttgart in the end due to them fielding an eligible player. But the quirk to this, uh, and I'll let you explain, is to, to why they came to to have a third game and, and where they did. How, how did that come about? What what the, the forfeited match? Tell us all about that Leeds Stuttgart. For our... So the, the story starts when uh, Leeds and Stuttgart play away in Stuttgart and, and the Germans win 3-0. Um, a, a quite in sort of <laughs> stereotypical, ruthlessly efficient uh, performance, capitalising on on a Cantona mistake actually uh, to sc- to score the first goal, and and they and they and they and they win three 0 Leeds bring them back to Ellen Road, and the atmosphere is intense. I mean, you can go and look at this up on YouTube. It's it stands up today for for atmosphere and passion, uh, and they and they. They score first, so every, so everyone's up for it, and they score early, and then um, the Germans score again, and they take they de- they completely deflate the stadium, they bring it to one all on the night, and now Leeds need another four. Well, they get three of them, and you know they for the last ten minutes they're knocking on the door, and you think they're going to go and w- end up winning five one. It's a tremendous performance, but in the end, it's sort of like one of those heroic failures in which I think we got kind of used to in Europe as well. You know, British, you know, so oh, they tried very hard, and it was just they just lost out on away goals. But the German uh, German uh, manager Christoph Daum uh, brought on a fourth foreign player as Leeds were sort of piling on that pressure for the last eight minutes. They had uh, a Yugoslav defender come on. He was actually making his debut for Stuttgart, and they just inexplicably didn't bring off one of the other foreign players because you were only allowed three at that time. And so when they, this was all noticed, uh, Leeds were saying, well, you need to kick them out. They've broke the rules of the competition. And Stuttgart were kind of saying to UEFA, please just, you know, it, it didn't really matter. It was only eight minutes type thing. So UEFA come up with a classic sort of fudge. They award the game 3-0 to Leeds, which is obviously a small, a, you know, uh, uh, fewer goals than they actually scored on the night but what that did was conveniently mean that they were tied on aggregate tied on away goals and they ordered a third game to be played of course on Friday night uh, a few days notice in Barcelona which is you know because UEFA is all about the fans as we know and so Everett, so uh, camp, uh, the new camp uh, Friday night it leads go and play Stuttgart there uh, and Leeds win 2-1 it's the famous Carl Schutt game uh, where he where he he again came on for Cantona, scored with pretty much his first touch, and uh, and the rest of as they say is history. I love it. It's Carl Shutt. It's just a typical sort of that's such a nineties story, isn't it? That someone as Carl Shutt. I know it's disrespect to him. He wasn't one of the big names. He wasn't one of the big members of the squad. Gets the winner in this weird playoff game in in Barcelona, wearing that yellow kit with the stuff at the bottom which is one of my favorite Leeds kits as well and um, for like a week afterwards as well I mean that's crazy you think of match scheduling now it's hard to pick a the main United Liverpool game that was cancelled a few weeks ago they took them forever to tie the game this was done a week later wasn't it it's just it's crazy it, 
Yeah, and it, and and that time the domestic leagues were just expected to move fixtures to accommodate this. It was what UEFA had ordered, and so it was it was going to happen. The interesting thing with with this is because it was a three legged tie, and I don't exactly know why, but Leeds actually wore three different kits in all three games. They wore their blue, they wore their blue away in the first. They're all white home in the second, and then they wore the yellow one in the third. So managing to wear three different kits in one single European tie is a record that will never be broken. If it's a kit record, then it pleases me, James, as anyone knows who listens to this. Um, Matthew, do you remember these games? Do you remember the hurrah over the Leeds? I've used that word a lot today, hurrah, but this this, um, season is full of them. But this is definitely a quirk of the early Champions League, isn't it? Yeah, I remember it clearly. And I think we we remember all these games so clearly because they were on... ITV and, I, and, and and this game was was on live and I was going to ask James because you've obviously done the research for memory if memory serves me I mean all the games in, involving the British teams were live on ITV right at this time not necessarily every game like nowadays you know even if it's Milan against Madrid I mean but I do I seem to remember every game that involved the British teams was on ITV it, it depended by region, to be honest. There were some regions which didn't show every game live, so that it wasn't there wasn't a centralised ITV schedule um, where they, they did have autonomy. And so, um, so some of the Rangers games in the group stage, uh, not all of the English regions had them live. I did, otherwise I wouldn't have been a, a captured as an impressionable kid <laughs> watching them in my bedroom. But yeah, uh, m- for most of the big regions like Central and Thames and Granada, they were shown, but not it wasn't uniform across across the entire country. Yeah, I think that's why, like I said, that's why it sticks in our mind. A lot of these games, this this season particularly, the reading back through some of the results, you think, oh yeah, I remember watching that, and I can picture the the titles. And I think, I mean, the various presenters they've had on ITV would it would have been Bob Wilson, or was he a bit later? And you know, in St John, our, our friend Elton Wellesby, no doubt. You know, def- def- definitely, Saint was involved in 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 a, in a lot of them. I think you had like Gary Newborn was the voice of sort of the pitch side reporter who would who would who, who would go everywhere, and it did have those uh, kind of classic big match titles uh, and those sort of cert- black and red circular graphics when they were unveiling the teams. It definitely it's of an era, isn't it? Do they still play you are the number one? Is that still are we still in that era? Is that the theme? No, I yeah. thought it was the was it not the match theme tune or was it or have we gone beyond that? I think they repurposed the Euro '92 theme tune to continue to continue it. It's certainly the Euro '92 studio. So if you see, if you if you go if you get if you manage to catch any of the sort of full match rather than the the highlights uh, clips on YouTube, you can see that it's the the studio they had built for Euro '92. Yeah, because I, I came across a clip of the um, I think we'll probably talk about it later. One of the Rangers games, and it was it was Saint. It was Ian St John presenting with Jack Charlton as the the sort of. Uh, co-host and that was yeah it's very much of that that era so um no no bells and whistles like it is now it was uh very basic but again it did the job and we all remember it so who needs who needs uh bells and whistles i suppose well you are the number one is the most bells and whistles song that i will ever need in my life because it's a fantastic piece of pop from paul young i i adore that i had the cassette tape from year two. <laughs> i think i've still got it somewhere in this cheddar chamber in office so i i'm always up for hearing more of you are number one proper 80s banger um, definitely. So we'll talk. But, but, but this this is one of, one of the things as well. But this because it wasn't the Champions League yet, because this is still in the European Cup phase of this season. ITV could do that as soon as you switch to the group stage. 
you have to have the Champions League anthem and the Champions League titles with the with the Snickers and the Philips sponsorship and everything like that. So this is why this is almost the last time you get that in European football because soon it everything the whole tournament is rebranded as the Champions League and UEFA exert that central control and market it centrally. We'll talk more about that season with Battle of Britain and of course that final that ended on a dodgy bit of a note. After this. Sit back and enjoy a nostalgic ride through the decade that truly changed the face of football. If the 90s are now retro, then it's time for a celebration. Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. You're listening to Alive and Kicking, the original 1990s football podcast. And we are talking about the 1992-93 Champions League season. And we're on to, excuse me, the Battle of Britain. Now, James, I remember this like so vividly. Like ITV, I say went all out, probably not as all out as if Sky would or whoever else would in 2021. But at that time, it was such a massive deal. And Rangers were such a... Not they're not a massive club now, which they've just won the league unbeaten, but the players they had then and the calibre of the SPL and, and Selwyn Rangers at that time was so big. And like, a guy like Mark Haley and Ali McCoy up front, they were such big names. And I had this weird affinity with Rangers because this is such a bizarre story that my nan was over for the weekend and we went to a toy shop when we were near me called Nuxley Toys for those in South East London. And she bought me a puzzle of Rangers thinking it was QPR, being a QPR fan, but it wasn't. It was Glasgow Rangers, which I, I liked because it was football. So I did it and stuff. But then it became like this weird, exotic Rangers team that I'd never heard of. So I had this kind of weird affinity to them. So then when they were playing Leeds and you could see them live, I was so into this game. But what do you remember about it, James, about how massive this sort of, you know, English versus Scottish champions game was? I mean, it's definitely big because I think ITV gave it 10 minutes build-up rather than five minutes build-up <laughs> yeah, <whoa. laughs> before going into kickoff, which is which is a sign of a huge game of, of, of that time. Um, it was huge and it was it was it it went beyond the mere sport. It wasn't one of those stories that just kept itself to the back pages. There were people sort of pontificating it about it on the front pages. There was lots of talk about the, the policing and security. Away fans weren't allowed at either leg because they were still expecting trouble anytime you know two groups of British fans got together. So it was it was it was intense for a period of time. Um, and of course, then they had the added element on the pitch of you know there was a bunch, there was some prominent Scottish players in the Leeds team in terms of in McAllister and Strachan, and some prominent English players in the in the Rangers team, Trevor Stephen, Mark Haitley, etc. So there was lots of different levels that it could uh, that, you, that you could look at it from, and um, you know all of that build up, the, the wall of noise that you get at Ibrox. That um, there's a nice sort of story in the book actually of of how the uh, that Gary McAllister told me about trying to communicate with the uh, with uh, with the team before kickoff, and they just couldn't. They couldn't. They couldn't hear each other, and they were just shrugging and like trying to communicate, you know, trying to communicate via hands because. The, the, the noise at Ibrox was just too much. And then after barely, barely just over a minute, Gary McAllister then goes and shuts them up with one of the sweetest volleys that you'll ever see. And because there's virtually no Leeds fans, or at least no Leeds fan brave enough to cheer in Ibrox, you hear nothing. And they actually thought the goal was disallowed. <laughs> you know, they didn't, because they didn't think, you know, because they're not used to just not hearing anything. And yeah, it was a very weird, 
uh, it was just a, a big game and a great start to it. Do you ever, Matthew, did you think at that point when that game was on, you know, it could have been a Man United Rangers clash, which in no disrespect to Leeds, it would have been even bigger at the, you know, two massive clubs of, of either, either country in, in, over across the British Isles. But I just remember it being massive. And obviously Leeds weren't the team they were the season before that. Their championship defence went horribly awry. Their waveform was terrible that season. And as it was to in this game, this eventual tie as well, as they went over, lost both games or 2 1. What, what are your memories of this classic tie? Yeah, I, well, I think the enormity of it, and, and the reason it was so enormous was because back in these days of European football, very England, two teams playing each other from England or Britain in this case was very rare. And I should have done my research before. But I'm just thinking off the top of my head. I mean, you had, I think, Forrest played Liverpool in the European Cup in 79, I think. And then before that, Celtic played Leeds, I think, in 1970, famously. And there are about 160-odd thousand at, hand, at uh, Parkhead or something. But, I mean, you could almost count on one hand the amount of times this had happened, whether, whether it was two clubs from the First Division or an English and a Scottish. So so this is probably the third time in, in people's lifetimes that there had been this Battle of Britain. Whereas now, it, it tends to happen more so, doesn't it? Certainly with domestic sides facing each other. I mean, you pretty much, I mean, just look at the final in the coming weeks of two teams in the Premier League. That's happened before. We, we've seen it with Chelsea and uh, United in 2008. And, you know, every year there seems to be a, a, an all Premier League clash in European football. Whereas back then it just, it was just such a, a freak of nature, really. It was almost like a, an FA Cup plum tie, wasn't it? And, and like you said, everyone went all out on this one because it was such a, such a big deal. And um, yeah, what a, what a game and then what a start I remember the big build up and then it was about 90 seconds um, the first goal went in and um, yeah it, well like I say we, we, I haven't watched that game probably since it happened but I can still picture it I can still remember it I can still remember everyone at school talking about it the day before and the day of and um, again going back on my soapbox I think that's purely because it was special because it was didn't happen very often and now we're pretty blase about you know United playing Celtic or Liverpool playing City or it just it just happens it's almost it's it's a product of the way the Premier League has been almost gerrymandered in my opinion that's why we, we don't get as excited about a Battle of Britain or an all, all English tie like we did back in this season no, it's true I, I remember Liverpool Celtic playing at the back end of the 90s I think that was in the UEFA Cup Manaman scored that yeah Weldy where he went round half the defence Roy Wegley style as I always call it um, but yeah, it didn't happen very rarely. You're right, definitely. Um, Rangers obviously won the tie. They went on to be in that final group stage, which, as we've said, was, an, was such a different way of doing the Champions League at the time. Um, those two, those eight teams were so in one group. It was Marseille, Rangers, Club Bruges, and CKSA Moscow. And then in Group B it was Milan, Gothenburg, Porto, and Eindhoven. The top two went through to face each other in the final, which is such a weird quirk as well. You don't really see that often. Uh, Rangers obviously didn't lose a game in that, but they, their one draw in the drop points meant that Marseille advanced to the final against AC Milan. So let's talk about the final, James. I mean, it's not... I hate this phrase because I feel it's it's a lot. I said a lot. It was I said a lot of the weekend, even though the stories in it were great. It's, but it wasn't a great game, the, the final. Obviously, Marseille won 1-0 thanks to Basil Bolly's header. Um, what do you remember about the game? I mean, these are two amazing. If you look at the names in these two sides, mm. it's it's quite ridiculous the amount of players and superstars that are on these two teams. 
some of which swapped as well pre this game. We had Papan, as I mentioned, who joined Milan from Marseille at the beginning of the season. Then you've got Desailly, who then joins from Marseille to Milan the following season. There's a lot of stories. What what do you make and what have you written and researched about that final? So, yeah, it, it wasn't as glamorous a, a sort of final as you get a year a year hence where Milan uh, get their revenge and beat Barcelona 4-0 in one of the sort of great European Cup final performances. But it probably on balance was a little bit better than the 91 final with Marseille and Red Star, you know, Star and even the Samp Barcelona from, from 92. I think as a, as a game and as a... As, you know, as a as a as a tactical encounter, it, there's a lot of merit into it. If that if that if that's if that's your sort of thing, yeah. um, from what I rem- remember and sort of looking back on it, it's it's uh, it's really the the saddest part of it is is the end. It's the last game of Marco van Basten's career, uh, and the Milan side really don't get out of second gear for much of the game. Partly because of the way that Marseille are, are, are controlling them and, and limiting their creativity, but partly because Capello makes one of the one of his rare emotional decisions and starts a clearly unfit Van Basten up front, um, probably for sentimental reasons. And um, because of the free foreigner rule, that meant that they had to have Papin on the bench in case Van Basten broke down, and that meant they could only have one of their other six of six foreigners that they have in the squad they can only have, they can only play one so that really sentimental decision from capello weakens weakens the team and it means hullets in the stand and Savicevic is in the stand and you know then and boban's not playing either so it's just it's just it's rycard and the italians trying to carry a, a van basten who's basically on one leg at this point um you know from from a marseille point of view it's you know You've got that great spine of, of uh, that we'd come to know towards the end of the decade of Bar- Barthez, Desailly, and, and Deschamps, mm. you know, providing that solidity and 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 that all that nous and experience and, and kind of getting getting them over the line. And that front three, I mean, Rudy Boller, Alan Boxic, and then Pele. Not obviously not that Pele, but the African Pele. I mean, that was that was some front line as well, especially as French football wasn't at its peak probably for another couple of years and, and, and we've seen some other players. Um, Matthew, I mean, we, don't, we haven't spoken a lot about Marco Verbasten on this show because his 90s, as James said there, ends here in 1993. But I'm a massive Van Basten fan. I think, you know, you think of what he could have been if he hadn't had to retire. I think he was 28 when he retired. He scored four goals in one match during this run as well against uh, Gothenburg. So for somebody who was at the end of his career, still banging them in on the European stage. How good for you was Marco Van Basten? And, and let's get your view on this on this final and the, and the two teams. Well, obviously, Van Basten's stats, you know, go without saying. You don't need me to tell you how good he is. I just think it was unfortunate. I think he was one of those players that paid the price for, not not literally, but he, he sort of paid the price for not being around playing at a time when football was a global TV sport. You know, I mean, how often would you have seen Van Basten play? Apart from, I mean, obviously, you think of that 88 European Championships, and you're going to give me a yellow card for talking about 80s football now. But um, yeah, that's what comes to mind because it was on it was on television. Whereas a lot of his games wouldn't have been seen <clears throat> if he had had he been playing now. Everyone would know everything about him, and you'd have seen every goal like we do with uh, you know, Messi and um, Ronaldo and all those kind of players. It's just second nature that we see them. Whereas back then, I don't know where you would have unless you subscribed to world football or maybe you saw a clip on Saint Greavesy or watched one of these games on ITV. Then um, you probably wouldn't have seen him. And I always feel that we've we've been sort of robbed yeah. of seeing a lot of players from that era that um, 
But now you'd, you'd say, you know, the greatest players in the world. I mean, he probably was the best player in the world at this time, that period. Um, but um, sort of went under the radar, uh, in my opinion, anyway. Um, but and, and I was going to say with this this final, I seem to remember, I don't remember a lot of, I'm going to use the word hoo-ha again, um, around the European Cup final then. It, to me, it always seemed if, if, if an English team wasn't involved, which they obviously weren't back then for a long time, um, it, it, it almost escaped people's attention. Whereas now the Champions League final has almost become a, a national event, well, a global event, hasn't it? It's almost become sort of football's Super Bowl. Whoever's in it, you watch it and you get the beers in and it's a big deal. Whereas then I seem to remember it almost being a sort of, oh, who's in the final? Oh, I'm not really interested in that. I mean, and it also had a reputation for being a pretty dull game. For years, there were some stinkers, weren't there? I mean, there was the, the Red Star one a few years before. There were, there were a few that were real poor games. Like, I always got the feeling, unless you were a bit of a football nerd, you just didn't really care about a European final unless... Um, unless the team was in it. I mean, obviously, the other day was the anniversary of the United winning in Rotterdam in 91. Obviously, that's something that we all remember because it was the first time an English club had been in a European final for a long time and it was a big deal. But um, in terms of these sort of games, it just, it just sort of, well, it, speaking from my point of view, it sort of escaped my imagination. Maybe that's, that's me. Maybe I just wasn't that interested unless there was a, a personal interest in it. But going back to what I said earlier, would this game, the final would have been on, ITV, I assume. Uh, this final was on BBC because of the they had a, an existing contract that was for, for 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 the finals that was separate from the rest of the European Cup tournament. So they were so BBC and ITV used to alternate the final. Um, you know, just and it was just happened to be BBC's turn in in nineteen ninety three. Um, but the um, one of the things that previously you're saying you, you had to be a football nerd to find it it wasn't always shown live there was some there were a couple of occasions in in the late 80s where it, all you could get of the european cup final on british tv was highlights yeah, and that seems mad to us now that you know of course they wouldn't just pull the champions league and just stick some highlights on at 10 o'clock yeah. that was very much of the time that was very much yeah. of its time wasn't it even even when there was a big game in Europe involving Liverpool or whoever was the big Everton whoever was the big team in the 80s quite often that wouldn't have been live it would have been on sports night or Midweek yeah. sports special. So it, you almost have to sort of caveat when we're talking like this, not that anyone listening to this probably wouldn't remember anyway, but it, it it was of the time. It wasn't that they just thought, well, we're not going to show the European Cup final. It's just that no one really expected it to be on. It was a bit of a bonus if it was on. So that's why I think we we almost have to look back and check the sort of memory bank to say whether it, we actually watched it or not, because quite often, I mean, especially if there was no British interest, like the UEFA Cup final or Cup Women's Cup final certainly wasn't showed because it just it just was deemed to be not of interest to to anyone which is bizarre now isn't it when people fall over themselves to watch german football and italian football and spanish football it's uh, it's just a complete different way of, of doing things well this final obviously had a sting in the tail as well james and it's why obviously i assume you called uh, the book the fix because marseille were involved in a massive scandal on the back end of this season and let i'll let you explain the specifics behind it um, people will know it's it's a match fixing issue. We'll know that they didn't get stripped of the Champions League, but fill in the gaps for us. And this got murky sort of asterisk that's always there against Marseille's name and, and their Champions League win of '93. Yeah, so Marseille have a have a game, and this is back in the time when the European Cup final was on a Wednesday. They didn't clear out a weekend. It wasn't the last game of the season. So they had, and they were involved in a very tight domestic title race with PSG at the time. 
where they're great rivals in French football. And they actually play PSG three days after the, champ- uh, the, the Champions League final in 93 and, and win, uh, win that again with a volley header. Uh, and, and, and they think they've secured their place in the Champions League for, for, for the following season. Um, but before that, there was a game uh, against a, a small team that was battling relegation called Valenciennes. Uh, and they're a small team in northern France. And the Marseille top brass uh, get one of their players who has a connection with some of the players uh, at that club to approach them and suggest, you know, for the good of French football, the first time that France might win the, uh, the, the European Cup, a, a tournament that was founded by a Frenchman, that it might be good for the players to go easy on them, uh, you know, so they didn't pick up any injuries before the uh, the Champions League final. And just to make sure they got the hint, they there was a a number of of, of, of francs uh, that were handed over to them in, uh, in more. Well, they were buried in certain players' gardens and things and things like that. So just to make sure that they they knew what they were supposed to do. Um, now they won that game one 0 They scored early on. It was a it was it was, uh, it was very very. It was very easy for them, um, but they got they sort of misjudged the character of one of the people that they approached, and he reported the approach to uh, to, to to the manager, who reported it to the French Federation, and it sort of spiraled from there. Uh, and UEFA were pressured into sort of uh, organising a, a bit of an investigation by FIFA, who were uh, who were very hot on this ethics stuff at the time. There was a, a young general secretary called Joseph Blatter who's, who, who cared about ethics. And, uh, what happened and, to him? <laughs> well, I don't know. don't know what happened to Joseph. Uh, but they, they, the, the French Federation were basically told, if you don't investigate this properly, we're going to take the World Cup in 98 away from you. We're not having this sort of scam. So and it all ends up in the courts and lots comes out in the wash. It's not the first time that they've done this. There's allegations that they have done this in European games, targeting uh, teams from Eastern Europe, who at that time were seen as more susceptible uh, for bribery because of the economic situation and the sort of political situation in those countries, targeting referees from Eastern Europe for certain games as well. Uh, and it all comes out in the wash. Um, 1995, Tappy's found guilty. Uh, a number of players are found guilty as well. Um, but obviously, that's a number of years. That's a number of years down the line. UEFA sort of cop out of giving them any punishment because they're like, well, it was a domestic match. It wasn't actually the Champions League, even though there was pretty clear evidence that they, that, that they were. This practice wasn't just limited to um to to uh, domestic matches because if you're going to bribe people why do you care about the ethics of whether it's a domestic match or a european match i'm pretty sure you don't it's a it's such a murky affair i mean for a long time i i didn't get the ins and outs here and because at the time growing up you don't understand unless matthew would said already you don't know about it unless you're reading world soccer we didn't have sky sports news we didn't have social Mm. media so it didn't it wasn't something i knew about until so much later in in the decade and my knowledge grew and my interest and and attention span us would you say uh, in the 90s matthew how aware are you of this this murkiness to to marseille's champions league win of 1993 well not really until i started researching this uh, for the show i mean obviously i was aware of it it's on you on your radar isn't it but it's not Again, because it wasn't, I mean, it was a scandal. Obviously, it was a big scandal in the game, but it wasn't, it, it, you think of things that make the news now and what a, the hoo-ha that is caused by stuff that's a lot less significant than this. And it makes you realise what a big deal it was. But, um, you know, I mean, would you say they're 
the, the final has been tainted by that. I mean, I, I don't know if it has. I mean, you could say, well, obviously there was something very dodgy about it, but I don't know whether people look back and go, oh, well, yeah, but that final was a fix or it was tainted. I think the the the, the, the final itself is is not a fix. There's no there's no money that you could that Tappy could have offered the Milan players that would make it worth losing the European Cup final or the Champions League final. Um, it's the question is on, on on the on the ethics of the team and kind of how they got there and whether they, whether 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 everything it was above board. There was there, there was certainly some there's certainly some allegations from Rangers fans and some suspicious results in the group stage. They point to the six nil. Uh, of uh, where Marseille beat uh, CSK Moscow six nil. Um, that's that's the result that stands out, and you you, you might want to have a look at that in the light of uh, of match fixing allegations uh, arising. Um, there's uh, there's some evidence in my book in terms of um, the management at Marseille, like uh, Bernays and Tappy, are trying to access referees, um, which is not you know which. Why are you trying to access the referee? Why are you trying to have conversations with the referee? And you know, in the stadium, you know, what is the purpose for that? If it's not nefarious, so there's there's a lot of kind of question marks around this. But I would say they're not they they, and this is this is not really a defence, but they, they almost certainly weren't the only ones doing it. They could be guilty of the, sort of like the eleventh commandment, you know, don't get caught, <laughs> and for their problems, they got caught. I mean, if you look at the the Serie A game um, immediately after that um, was broadcast live in the UK. Immediate, uh, the week after this Champions League final, there is almost there is clear evidence of match fixing that's playing out live on TV in a game between Milan and Brescia, where Milan essentially allow Brescia to score a goal because it doesn't affect them and it might relegate one of their rivals, and no one talks about it. Because it, and it's, 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 I said, I've said it a few times, it's of its time, but it was, it seemed to be just people to, it was sort of built in into people's expectations that this sort of thing happened in Europe. And obviously you had the famous example of Forrest and Anderlecht back in the, back in the seventies or eighties, there's allegations around Juventus and Derby in the seventies. I think people looked at European football in that time and just went, yeah, maybe it's not all on the up and up. And they were yeah. in, in the Premier League, didn't we? Later in the decade, with the I know they were found mm. innocent in the end, but with Grobler, Hans Sagers, and John Fashion as well. I'm actually speaking to Hans Sagers this week, so I'm going to try and tiptoe around that subject. Uh, no, <laughs> just ask him. Did, did you fix that? Did, did you do it, Hans? Did you? I, I remember speaking to Bruce Grobler about it um, for this show. Actually, go back in the archive; it's there somewhere. Um, and he's still very, very bitter, which I suppose if he is innocent and he has been proven in the court that he is, that you would be because it's, we're still talking about it in 2021. And there is that kind of, again, another asterisk um, um, to his name. So, yeah, um, James, I'm really looking forward to reading the book. I know you've sent it to me and I will. If there's time between trying to, t- to, uh, to see two little girls in my house, I'm going to try and sit down and give it a good read because from what we've learned today, I've already feel like I've my knowledge being expanded. So I'm really looking forward to, to reading the book. Um, Give a plug again where they can buy it and where people can follow you on social media. So they can buy it wherever they normally buy their books. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's it's widely available, at least in uh, online. It's called The Fix, how the first Champions League was won and why we all lost. And if you want to follow me on social media, I'm at The Fix Book. 
Nice work. Uh, Matthew, let's sign off with you. Where can people follow you? The uh, the Top 21 podcast. You've done very well there. I must say, you've mentioned the 1991 Cup Winners Cup final and he didn't mention Brian's name. So well done. You get a gold star for that, but you can mention it now. I'll let you. Well, that's because the latest episode of Life with Brian, the Brian McClare <laughs> podcast, is a special 30th anniversary edition of the 1991 Cup Winners Cup final in Rotterdam, featuring Brian himself and... Uh, author and journalist Andy Mitten uh, and you can find that on Live with Brian but you can also follow me at Matthew J Christ on Twitter and Instagram as well. Good stuff and as usual you can follow the show at AK90s on Twitter at AK90s pod on Instagram so thank you very much to James and thank you to Matthew as always. I've been Ash Rose we'll be back on the next episode we've got another author talking about why modern football is rubbish as well so yeah chance for me and Matthew to have a right old moan about modern football, which we, we do quite often. So do join us for that. Um, until then, I've been Ash Rose. This has been Alive and Gigging. Until next time, keep it 90s. <laughs>